Hello. Pretty soon, once I've done a few more shows, I'm going to start doing intros for these things. But don't get the impression that that's what's going to happen now. We both know what show you're listening to. It's already started. I'm glad you're here. Here we go. I come from a long line of scumbags, criminals, bullshit artists, and it's not something I'm happy about. Of all the painfully embarrassing stories I have to tell, this has got to be one of the ones that I used to be the most ashamed about. It's my take on the I wish I was adopted story, I guess. I suppose I've all gone through a version of this. Everything in a hanky on a stick and off we stride. It's a tale of not accepting where one has come from, of our past being shrouded in impenetrable mystery, and of, one way or another, getting to a point of being comfortable in our own skin. So here goes. I woke up, like most mornings, shocked that it was morning, appalled by the bird song and the creeping light. The ache all over my body, hoping that it would all stop. But knowing that it was all only going to continue. So I, I put on some coffee. Hey, I've given up coffee, by the way. It's quite good. It's a bit terrifying. And I went to the bathroom. I looked at my reflection in the mirror. And I thought the thought that I had thought a thousand times before in front of the mirror. Jeez, I don't look anything like my dad. But what made today different was, today, I followed it up with another thought I'd also thought a thousand times before, but one that I'd never put so close right next to the other one, which was, jeez, I look like Bruce Finnegan. So, to unpack it a little, my dad died a long time ago, so... I can't be asking him anything now. And even if he was alive and I could ask him, I couldn't be sure I'd be getting the right answer. He's that kind of guy. So my dad was a Scandinavian-looking, super blonde, lean and muscular, cut like a racehorse. Michelangelo could have used my old man as a model while he was working on his David statue. He had not a single hair on his chest. The way I describe him, maybe he sounds pretty good physically. But the way he lived his life, the guy was a bona fide scumbag. A reminder, dear listener, that good looking is not necessarily the same thing as good. Bruce Finnegan was one of my dad's closest friends. Well, I'm not sure if my dad had actual... Friends, I doubt he was able to experience closeness with another human being. It was more a people he kept close who he felt could be useful to him type of arrangement. But Bruce Finnegan, being one of those people my dad felt could be useful to him, was around a fair bit when I was a little kid. I'll describe him. Bruce Finnegan was red-headed with green eyes. He was short and wide with legs like a draft horse, arms like beer rails, You'd want to have him on your tug-of-war team. He was always squinting like the sun was too bright for him, one eye shut, 
The other eye cracked open just a tiny bit so he could see what was going on. And he could laugh. He was always laughing. I remember practicing discus throwing with him when I was maybe six or seven years old. And Bruce Finnegan would run to where I threw the discus and he'd catch it before it hit the ground. I get now that it was a little 500-gram rubber discus wobbling through the air to awe him, probably really not that intimidating. And he was this solid mass of a man. But in that moment, it was miraculous. For me, I'm putting everything I had into a throw. And for Bruce Finnegan, just to see him pluck this discus out of the air like it's a dandelion floating on the breeze... I'd look completely stunned. He'd roar with laughter and then he'd spin the discus lazily off one finger and it'd roll back across the grass like a lawn bowl and it'd start to lean over and stop at my feet. And I'd be stunned and amazed again and there'd be another roar of laughter and we'd do it all over. I asked my old friend Addie about it and she said, Yeah, I always wondered about your dad. You were so desperate for his approval. Really? I was a little taken aback, but she was right. I'd invested a lot in trying to get that guy to like me. I showed her a picture of Bruce Finnegan and asked, What about this fella? And she said, Hello, Papa. I wanted it so badly, I wasn't sure what she was saying. Meaning? That's the guy, she says, like we struck gold. So... You're saying, based on his physical features, based on this photo, that this guy could be my biological father? Well, you look just like him. (sighs) I started seeing fathers with their sons everywhere. As though I'd never seen it before, my eyes were open. Younger versions of the older ones, going down the aisles in the hardware store. This is what the selfish gene is. Grandmothers in the park with their granddaughters. Families out to dinner with three generations at the table. All able to recognise parts of themselves across the table. Across generations. I was bewildered. I showed my daughter pictures of five different men, a kind of de facto lineup. Which one do you think is my dad? Straight away she picked out Bruce Finnegan. Why him? I asked. Well, you got the same green eyes. He's squinting like you, same nose, and around the nose, same forehead, same frickly skin, the same head, the same red hair. I mean, what else is there? You're practically identical. I asked my dear old friend Duncan. I thought he was a bit of a cunt, your old man. I thought I'd done a pretty good job of hiding the worst of it. I mean, covering up and hiding was the stock in trade of our family. But maybe that's what your flaneur friends are for. To point out that while you might think you look stylish, you have three feet of loo paper trailing off the heel of your boot. I sent the same five photos to my mate Jackie. She had the benefit of not being related to me or having met my old man. Plus the improved scientific rigour of me asking her to eliminate them one round at a time, each least likely candidate until we were left with a winner. The first one she ruled out as being absolutely not being related to me was my dad. Might I mention that all of the photos were of men who had some kind of fatherly role in my life at one time or another. 
One of the candidates I included was Ian Pitt, an incredibly kind and generous man who taught me so much over the years about making shows for festivals, but even more about how to live a good life. The point being that Ian has curly black hair, and Ian didn't go out in the first round. He lasted till round two. My dad got kicked out round one. We got sidetracked and never finished the game. But it was beginning to dawn on me that this collision of early morning thoughts in front of the mirror was wanting a proper answer. A DNA test would put a full stop on it, one way or the other, wouldn't it? Well, after the disastrous attempt of my dad's first family, luckily he repeated all of the mistakes with a second wife. After a bunch of tentative messages back and forth, it turned out my half-brother just happened to have his DNA up on one of those websites. And so if I got mine done, we could compare our DNA. Basically, if we had the same father, different mothers, there'd be enough markers there to say unequivocally that we were related. So I signed up and ordered a kit and waited. I suspect they deliberately take their time at these DNA companies. That way you need to renew your subscription a couple of times before the process is complete. While I waited, I trawled through what other family members had put up on the family tree. Government documents and newspaper clippings mostly. Many of my grandfather, my dad's dad, and my great-grandmother, Dorothy, in the parlance of the day, the feeble-minded, unmarried woman of no means, earned money the only way she knew, and that came with the usual occupational hazards of the day. So, just like his many brothers and sisters before him, in 1921, my grandfather, Kenneth Henry, was born into an orphanage, fostered out, returned, fostered out, returned, joined the Navy, HMAS Perth, went AWOL, returned. He always told the story of how for his 21st birthday the Japanese Imperial Navy gave him the present of blowing his ass into the water, how they were off some strait or another off Indonesia in the Second World War. He never went into any detail, he'd just get drunker and drunker and pass out, with his last cigarette still burning between his fingers. I always figured it was bullshit. Watched the rest of the late-night movies by myself. Almost all of my grandfather's stories were bullshit, about how he lost the end of his little finger gambling in Alexandria. But digging into it over 30 years since I last heard the story, with the wonders of modern technology, there it is, in the historical record. The HMAS Perth, the ship my grandfather had already gone AWOL from and been returned to, by chance, on the night of his 21st birthday, happened upon a massive flotilla of the Japanese Imperial Navy on its way to invade Java. The Japanese were equally surprised to see enemy ships in their path, so they did what you're supposed to do in a war and sunk them with overwhelming force and efficiency, along with four or five of their own by friendly fire. According to the record, the USS Houston lost 696 sailors that night. The HMAS Perth 375. Fuck. The Japanese scooped the survivors out of the water and took them prisoner. 368 from the Houston and 307 from the Perth. What? 
Because humans are meaning-making machines. We fill in the gaps in narratives in order for things to make sense for us. And when things don't make sense, our frustration keeps us working on them until we do figure things out. I'd always imagine my grandfather waking up in a hospital in Darwin in a plaster cast from his tiptoes to his hips, both his legs being broken from the blast, a spunky nurse taking his temperature and winking at him. I'd never figured out how he got from the torpedoed boat to Darwin. And it had never been a problem till now. I mean, right this second now as I'm researching this. There's 19 months between the night of the Perth being sunk, his 21st birthday, and his discharge date. Where was he? Was he a Japanese prisoner of war? He certainly never allowed any Japanese brands in his house. Even when Australia started to embrace him in the 70s and 80s, he never even so much as rode in a Japanese car. He would cross the street rather than walk past any Asian person. Not that he got out that much. Returned from the war, he spent the rest of his life in a haze of alcoholism, a force more powerful than himself. A bastard child, Kenneth Henry married a woman who had become pregnant to her best friend's kind and charming brother. They named the boy Kenneth, just to be sure. The next child was his, but while it was being born, Kenneth Henry was out on a multi-week bender, and when he returned to the boarding house, he discovered that he had a son called Graham, named after one of the doctors at the hospital in Carlton, explained Kenneth Henry's wife. Graham? No son of mine's got to be called Graham! But it's already on the birth certificate, darling. Jim! His name's Jim! And he was out the door and gone again. Who knows where he got Jim from? Kenneth Anthony grew tall, wide and strong. Greasy black hair. Jim stayed small and bony. Lean like a gazelle, hair so blonde it glowed white. There were lots of jokes about the milkman. Wherever the family moved, Kenneth's alcoholism quickly ruined any chance of them making ties to the community. So they moved often. Jim and Kenneth Anthony described their happiest childhood memories as being when they were temporarily put in foster care for some reason. The more I dug, the more I found out that as many as 80 crew of the HMS Perth had neither drowned nor were taken prisoner, but had actually made it to Sangjing Island and 10 of these sailors planned to sail back to Australia in a Japanese lifeboat that they'd renamed Anzac. But my grandfather wasn't among them and they'd all surrendered. Then I found his service card from the Navy, definite proof that he was on the Perth. Handwriting from nearly a century ago can take some deciphering, but after some slow and steady work, here's the gist of it. Joined up to the Navy at the start of the Second World War at the age of 18 as an ordinary seaman on the Cerebus. He either adjusted his age to get in or it just sort of moves around a bit. It's amazing how often people didn't dot their I's or cross their T's in those days or cross their L's and wrote their S's and N's exactly the same just for kicks. Anyway, he lasted nine months on the service. His character assessed as VG, which I guess we can interpret as very good, 
On the next ship, his character doesn't get a rating. This ship is the Perth. He lasts six weeks. He goes AWOL on the 14th of June, 1940. Remarks on his card are as follows, or at least the bits I'm able to make out. Discharged, and then that's crossed out and is replaced in large letters with RUN! And then a little further down. Joined Army and in camp at Ingleburn approved, comma, to be, comma, claimed, comma, punished and discharged, S-N-L-R, on completion of sentence... 8840. And the sentence was 35 days served on shore while being assigned to the HMA's Penguin for desertion of the Perth. SNLR stands for services no longer required, which is the armed services shorthand for being given the sack. During a war, a world war, which I imagine is quite an achievement. So he wasn't on the Perth for his 21st birthday, the night it was torpedoed and more than half the crew died. It turns out that my grandfather's stories were bullshit after all. Of course, if he had stayed on the Perth, odds on, he wouldn't have made it. Even if he had been picked up by the Japanese, a third of those sailors died as prisoners of war. So maybe I ought to be grateful that my grandfather was unable to conduct himself in the way that my nation's navy required him to, because I wouldn't exist otherwise. I mean, there could be a different person in a different time, walking around, calling themselves I. And would they have it better or worse than me? (laughs) Be careful what you wish for, Trizay. And so while the Perth did... Go to Alexandria, and there may have been some gambling in an Alexandria. That's not where Kenneth Henry lost his little finger gambling. And the Japanese didn't blow his ass into the water for his 21st birthday. As far as I can tell, he was never deployed anywhere in the Second World War. But he did have one big book he enjoyed reading and rereading. Ships, it was called. What kind of nut tells these stories as stories of family history? I mean, he told them over and over again. Kenneth Henry is torn apart by the state as an infant and was never put together. It's only with the tools of the 21st century that this bullshit family mythology can be done with. So the DNA came in. My half-brother and I share 2,160 centimetres of DNA across 36 segments, the longest segment being 197 centimetres. I have no idea what any of that means, except, in other words, my dad is my dad. (sighs) How do I have a completely different body type than my dad? Complexion. Eye colour, earlobe attachment. How is it I'm shorter than him? I mean, I can sing. I can fix things. I'm not inherently tended towards criminality. And what about Bruce Finnegan? 
the guy who, the older I get, I look even more like. Why did his girlfriend seem to almost tear up every time she saw me? Why was he friendly to me way into adulthood, years after my dad passed away? The part that I struggled with the most was how far I would go to make excuses for my dad. One version might go slightly like this. I excuse my dad for the neglect and violence and abuse. If he knew that he was not actually my biological father, and once our mother abandoned us us kids, he was left with two kids to raise, and one of them wasn't even his. I understand it's the same mechanism as hoping my grandfather, being so useless, was an effect of having survived the Perth and years in a Japanese POW camp. It's just making up excuses. But no, I'm at the point now where I accept that my parents and grandparents were just plain old, ordinary fuck-ups. Failing in their most basic human duties. Trauma doesn't naturally fade and disappear over time. It works the opposite way. Like a funnel, it focuses and concentrates. do this story because I've been doing my best to step out of intergenerational trauma. I'm getting the hang of it. I'm getting the hang of it. But I guess I'm still so close to it, it's a bit hard to tell sometimes. Once I'm a bit further away, I'll have another look around and I'll let you know what it looks like. Good luck out there.